let's hope the city limit signs in Seattle are very well marked. This is This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this is for the third full week of December 2020. Yeah, there were a lot of markings this uh, summer on the, at Capitol Hill, and that was the picture for that first episode of the week on thisiscommonsense.org. Uh, needed theft. Needed theft. I mean, have we ever needed theft more <laughs> than we needed today? <laughs> The idea that's being studied by some of the city council in Seattle and they're looking at is to provide an affirmative defense for theft. That my defense is I needed something. I needed food. I needed shelter. I needed money. And therefore, I had to steal. Um, Now, on the one hand, it's sort of ridiculous in the sense that this is a land of plenty. There are people who don't work, who are getting in some states $35,000 plus in government benefits, which is more than some people who are working full time. And, and so, and, you know, there's plenty of places to get food and so on. And, you know, oftentimes if, you know, if, you know, the, the folks who are suffering from food insecurity, are kids and their parents aren't doing what they should do. But the, the idea that somehow there's just wanton, you know, need everywhere where people are starving. I, I heard something the other day on, uh, on some YouTube video or another where someone was talking about, we have to do something because people are freezing to death and starving to death and so on. And, and I look at, you know, from, from what I can glean, nobody's starving to death in America, like nobody. And if they are, it's because there's some, it's it's not a lack of food. There's plenty of food out there. It's not a lack of charity. There's lots of charity out there. And if people knew there needed to be more, I think they'd step up and, and do more. So on that side of the equation, this idea that we live in this horrible dystopia where everyone's starving to death and somehow can't find food and therefore they like the, you know, Les Mis character have to steal a loaf of bread and then they're thrown in jail forever. That is ridiculously untrue. But look at the other side of this. And one, it's a really bad thing to tell people it's okay to steal because stealing's wrong. And, you know, it's interesting. It's not just the Christian religion. It seems to be every religion you can look at through time has thought that stealing is wrong. I'm a crazy old guy who still thinks it's wrong. And I think most people do. And the the idea that somehow we've gotten to a point of technology and abundance to where we have to kind of revisit the basic building block of society and maybe maybe stealings, you know, not so bad. Maybe it's okay in some cases. And of course you might say, well, and is murder okay? And of course, oh no, that's different. Except as you and I, Tim, discussed this week as we were doing this script, the idea that stealing's okay kind of suggests that the innocent person walking down the street with some money in his pocket or her pocket that it's okay to steal from them. And that person might say, hey, wait a second, I need this money and I'm not giving it to you. So is it okay then 
to maybe threaten to hit him in the head. Or maybe if they don't take the threat, what can you do? You need the food. You need the money. You better hit him in the head. Don't hit him too hard, though. We don't want to hurt him permanently. Of course, if you do hit him too hard and maybe they go into a coma, they're going to make a federal case out of it. So the the idea that stealing is okay immediately leads to a world in which there's more violence, in which people are going to be carrying guns to protect themselves from the people who have been authorized by the state to steal. And it's, I guess the, the silliest thing is that we have gotten to such a ridiculous point in terms of social discourse and what sort of society we ought to have that we're, we feel the need to discuss this. I mean, I think a lot of people, I have one guy who said, this is ridiculous, this isn't gonna happen. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Uh, someone else, this is just to, to get everyone outraged. Well, everyone should be outraged. This is a recipe for it's okay to beat up little old ladies and steal their purse. And, you know, I don't know who wants to live in that society, but apparently there's a there's some city council people in Seattle who'd like to study moving toward that society. So I'm not a big fan of, you know, outrage. Oh, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. And, and we do get just yanked around by different stories where we're supposed to feel outrage. And this particular story, when I first came upon it, in fact, we discussed this. I mean, what else? What other sources are there and we, there was one very good blog post on it that we linked to in the piece which of course isn't some official media source but uh, the official media so often doesn't cover it although in this case the other source that we used was Com como is is it como is that how they say it k-o-m-o and uh and and so this is a major radio tv you know conglomerate in in washington state out of seattle and so this is not, I mean, I thought this couldn't be possibly true. Well, it is true. And it's possible that it becomes law. Um, now, the, the state legislature, someone else suggested to me, well, the state legislature will come down on them and stop them. And, and I thought, well, right off, I'm not sure what the home rule status of Seattle is and, and legally whether the state legislature could stop them, although I'm not sure the state legislature would. I think the courts would step in at a certain point and say, absolutely not. You, you know, you, you cannot use that defense. Um, and I think they should step in. But the truth is, as long as we are worried about whether, you know, who's going to step in and stop the Seattle City Council from legalizing theft, um, you know, th that's a real super big problem. And uh, and that's that's no longer about what how to structure our government. That's more of how to get our heads straight enough that we can live as human beings. Um, this this is it. It's it's kind of one thing after another. We're just going to, you know, look for any way to legalize a revolution against the rich. And the truth is, that little old lady walking down the street in Seattle, the rich are gonna leave. It's not the rich who are gonna be bopped in the head. The rich are gonna hire security. 
And the not quite as rich are going to say, I can't afford a security arm, but I can get a really nice pistol. I can get some good, you know, pepper spray. Maybe I need to carry a big knife. This is asking for a war on the streets. And of course, that's what, you know, they've already gotten some of it and they seem to want more. Uh, looking at what's happened in Seattle, what's happened in Portland, Oregon, uh, this is insane that this is even being discussed anywhere, but especially at this time for Seattle, after the, you know, the uh, Capitol Hill escapades for Seattle City Council to be looking at something like this. I mean, I just, if I lived in the city and I had the wherewithal to move out, I would. And I, I think it's going to be tough for any business to want to locate in Seattle. And frankly, they may not want to locate anywhere around Seattle. I used to live in Seattle. And uh, I liked Seattle back then, for the most part. That's when there actually were businesses that you could walk into off the street. Uh, so I guess the thing that r strikes me about this thing is, is, A, how nostalgic I feel about it. Because this is nostalgia for the late 1800s, when socialism really was radical. And and I mean and this idea of you know basically letting the poor steal was their way of just taking the law into their own hands and you know presaging the uh, socialist revolution in advance. Well, that's all. I guess that's what you do when you presage something. Um, and uh, and the other thing that's interesting is is that this is in the context of COVID, and I think that people there are people who are hurting that you might be surprised who are hurting, uh, and that's an unfortunate thing. And, of course, what the government should be doing is not preventing people from going into business. And It is true that I think it's easier for someone to fall through the, the cracks in the safety net today during this pandemic than it might otherwise be. But, again, the, the, solution, the, the solution is fix the safety net, although that's, that is like an immediate stop this person from starving solution. The real solution is to get at the problem of poverty, which is almost entirely either created by someone doing the wrong things, like being addicted to heroin and shooting up all the time instead of looking for work, or in other cases where people are trying to find work and trying to better themselves and gain skills, making it possible for them to find work Maybe the 15-hour uh, uh, minimum, $15 an hour minimum wage in Seattle is not such a good idea. Uh, a lot of people have lost their job because of that. And they're not rich people. They're poor people who've lost their jobs. Um, and, and maybe there's other things like getting rid of the barriers for people to get into business. So there are things that government can do, mainly get the heck out of the way. But there are things they can do legalizing stealing or or suggesting that it's a defense you can use, which means, you know, you can lawyer up and, and argue these things. Maybe it's a maybe it's another, you know, kind of uh, wealth program for attorneys. But I think they're doing OK. I think we maybe ought to focus more on the poor. Uh, anyway, this is this. There's no level at which this is on which this is not crazy. Um, but. Tuesday's piece, um, in many ways, uh, was my favorite of the week because there's going to be a lot of discussion about the steal of the election, which I haven't seen the evidence it was stolen. I've seen a lot of stuff that 
that I think needs more study that I want to know more about. And it's it's interesting to me that my media, my big media corporations, I call them mine, I'm kidding, uh, but the big media corporations don't seem to be interested at all. <laughs> I guess they're, they're other readers and watchers, viewers, listeners, they must not care because the media is not at all in that interested in that particular story. But the other story, and I think as time goes on, hopefully we will learn more. And hopefully, I don't think there's anything that's going to stop. You know, I, I discussed with somebody last night that uh, they thought, no, somehow Trump's going to find some way. Uh, no, I don't think so. And I think this election is over. Um, and I don't see any evidence to stop it from being over. Uh, because I think you have to have enough evidence of sp particular votes. And I think that the way the election was conducted, a lot of that evidence, evidence is impossible to get, even if there was a big steal. So, you know, try those, those on for size. But let's fast forward a little bit because there's a problem we have, or fast forward, uh, rewind. There's a problem we have that the government can't solve for us. And we got lots of problems that the government can create and not solve. But this is one they didn't really create, I don't think. This is the problem with our media. And our media has always leaned left. I don't think that's the biggest problem in the world. I don't think it's because there's some huge conspiracy or evil uh, behind everything. I think that people on the left tend to be more interested in journalism, less interested in going into business, uh, other businesses. And I think people on the right tend to be a little less interested in going into journalism, more interested in going into business. So, so that there's a little bit of a lean to the left is not shocking to me. The fact that we have a media that is way left, left of the left of the Democratic Party, which is way, way left, that doesn't strike me as being normal uh, or natural. And I think part of it is that media has become bigger, a, a you know, bigger part of the economy, a bigger issue, more fame, more glory. Uh, you used to have a lot of working class, smart people who went into the media. Now you've got a lot of people in the National Press Corps who graduated from Princeton and Harvard and Yale and, and different places. And I think the media is much more elite minded and from the elite than it used to be. But on Tuesday, the, the name of the script is mainstream disinformation. And whatever you think happened with the voting machines and whatever irregularities, or maybe you think there were no irregularities, what happened in the media is something altogether different. And I include in the media, social media. Remember that last word is media. And so, so what happened in our election? Well, about 10 days before the election, we had a big story break. You, you may not have heard about it, but, but I did. And, uh, and the New York Post did an expose on what was found out of Hunter Biden's laptop that he happened to leave at a computer place in New Jersey that was subsequently copies of it were given to Rudy Giuliani. 
who then gave it to the New York Post. Copies of it were also given to the FBI. And now that was not maybe known by people in the media that the FBI had the laptop, although it was soon reported. And it wasn't confirmed that the FBI was running an investigation at that time because this FBI, unlike the FBI under Mr. Obama, this FBI didn't spout out all kinds of things for the benefit of PR to try to affect the election. My hat is off. I salute Bill Barr. Bill Barr, you know, politically not my favorite guy. He's kind of a, you know, a little bit more for a national security state than I will ever, ever, ever be. Um, I see him, you know, not as, you know, he certainly doesn't have a lot of libertarian tendencies. He's much more of a conservative. Um, but I think, you know, he got lambasted all the time as being a toady of, of Donald Trump. I think if any, any reasonable look at what he's done as, as attorney general, he wasn't a toady of Mr. Trump. He called it like he saw him. I think he thought that the Mueller investigation came up with nothing because of the Mueller investigation. I mean, what did they come up with? What did the investigation say? Hey, we've got him on, on collusion. Hey, we've got him on obstruction of justice. No, they didn't say they had him on anything because they didn't have the president on anything. So that's, that's uh, really why everyone wanted to beat up on, on Bill Barr. And I know that they think he, he misreported uh, the, what the Mueller investigation said. Well, I, I've read large parts of the Mueller report. I've read what Bill Barr had to say. I don't see that at all. And, um, and, and so anyway, but now you see that he could have very easily found a way to get that information into the public. And I guarantee you the way that the deep state from the FBI to the intelligence agencies to other government bureaus have leaked like a sieve during Donald Trump's administration. If this FBI investigation had been Don Jr. instead of Hunter Biden, I have no doubt whatsoever that someone at the FBI would have found a way to let the newspapers know. Instead, it was an investigation of Hunter Biden, and nobody at the newspapers seemed to know. Although you wonder, because even if they knew, would they have reported it? And, and that, to just step back, that's the whole problem. The idea, Thomas Jefferson said, if we had a choice between free government and a free press, he would choose the free press, meaning that the freedom of the press is so important that we were we'd be more apt to turn an unfree government into a free government if we had the free press than keep a free government free if we didn't have the free press. The press is awfully important, but I don't know how anyone can look at the way they've reported in the last year, in the last four years, and you can probably go back even further and say that they are trying to give us all the information they can so that we, with that information, can make political decisions because we are the sovereigns. We're the people of the United States. We are the government. We are the sovereign power. That's not how it works. The media is not giving us tons of information and then, and then letting us make decisions. 
they are giving us only the information we they think we will take and not change our mind to vote away that they don't want us to vote. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, my niece, uh, last night I, I was visiting with some family and and my niece referred to it, said, said um, I want the news, not an advice column. And I thought, boy, that's a great way to say it. In essence, what we're getting from the mainstream media is tantamount to an advice column where they're gonna tell us kind of what we ought to think instead of what we ought to know so that we can think about it and make our own decision. And that's the problem. And we have to do something to make certain that we are not tied up and limited in what we can know. And some people might say, well, watch Fox. I watch Fox, I watch MSNBC. I try to read and, and see stuff from different sides. But the truth is Fox does some of that uh, same thing. They just do it in a different direction. I want to, to find outlets that will give us all the information that we need. And, and someone asked me weeks ago, you know, well, what media outlet do you trust? I said, none. Um, so it's, it's the sort of thing, well, let's look a little bit about this piece. I, I one mention that, uh, Glenn Greenwald, who I think is, is, is my favorite journalist, uh, what he did in helping to break the Edward Snowden story, and just he continues coming from the left. He's not coming from the right, but he will criticize the left, and he will criticize the right, and he seems to be no holds barred, and that's what we need. He literally, what, a week, 10 days before the election, leaves the publication, The Intercept, that he helped found and made a name for it because the editors at The Intercept won't allow him to publish a column about Joe Biden unless he takes out all the negative things about Joe Biden. Now, that is, whew, that's unbelievable. So what else happened? Well, we had the New York Post, as I mentioned, come out with this big expose, and people immediately read it and wanted to share it on Facebook, on Twitter. Why not? This is really interesting. They couldn't. They were blocked. They were blocked by media companies. Now, Facebook, the blocking wasn't quite as total as it was at Twitter. But at Twitter, not only did they block that post, they blocked the New York Post, the fourth largest paper in the country for weeks until I believe the election was over before they got their, their Twitter handle back. Why? Because Twitter doesn't publish or allow to be published stories that are hacked. Now, there's two problems with that response by Twitter. One, it's a lie. They do allow all kinds of stories that are hacked. Oftentimes stories are hacked. All these leaks are illegal. Most of the news over the last four years that the New York Times and the Washington Post has printed has been given to them illegally. Now, it isn't illegal for them to take it and publish it. It's illegal for the government person who gave it to them to give it to them. So, and is that hacked? 
Well, I don't know. But of course, if you won't print hack news, then you wouldn't have printed the Pentagon Papers. You, there's all kinds of things that you would not allow to be out there. And we would have a trickle of information coming from administrations. The reality is that is not the standard that Twitter has used. It's just not. So it's a bunch of BS for them to say it. But here's the other thing. This story wasn't hacked. There's no hack. There's nothing was stolen. He left a laptop. According to the, the guy who owns the place that had the laptop, he called him and said, come get your laptop. He never came and got it. That's not a hack. That's not a theft. That's called, I think, Hunter Biden. But, uh, but anyway, um, and, and of course, so many people, how, how dare you attack Hunter Biden, a recovering addict? Have you heard this latest line? No, oh, no, no. This is just meanness to attack poor Hunter Biden. Well, of course, the real impetus behind discussing Hunter Biden is the fact that on that laptop in, in emails, Hunter Biden is talking about giving a cut to the big guy. I'd really like to know who the big guy is. Some people, surprise, surprise, have suggested it could be Vice President Joe Biden, who's now President-elect Joe Biden. So you can see where even if you didn't want to hurt Hunter Biden, the recovering alcohol or recovering drug addict, um, and of course, if Hunter Biden somewhere recovering from drug addiction, who would want to attack him? There's no attack there. It's only the fact that Hunter Biden was making millions of dollars selling access to his father to people like the Chinazis, to Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukrainian oligarchs and so on. This is, I mean, if it, to think about the media who, if anyone ever makes a contribution to some political candidate, it's all dirty and the, the implication is always there's some vicious quid pro quo and everything's corrupt. And yet then when they have all this information about someone who has no knowledge of the oil industry and no real expertise in any of these fields is being given over a billion dollars by a Chinese bank that's connected to the state. And let's face it, every business in China is connected to the state the second the state wants them to do anything that they tell them to do. And in, and what most people probably don't realize is almost every business in China also is required to hire a certain number of Communist Party members. So, you know, this idea that this was just some private, you know, Chinese company, there's no such thing. So not that our media would ever inform people of that, but that's the reality. And of course, to just step back a, a step in all of this, when you think about the Washington Post covering news that involves China or the Wall Street Journal, the, the Chinese Daily, China Daily, which is a state-owned, so there's no, no, not even any fig leaf, a state-owned newspaper spent over $10 million in the last decade running ads that looked a lot like news in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal for publications that are supposed to be informing the American people to be taking money from the Chinazis 
that is disturbing. And you hear almost nothing about it because who's going to print it? The, the media is not going to say, hey, we're really rotten because we're taking all this money. But I want to know, does that have any effect on how they might cover stories? Would it maybe at least give somebody with the Chinese paper the ability to pick up the phone and say, hey, why are you doing this? This is terrible. All of a sudden, they're talking to a customer now. I think that that's a dangerous little involvement. And if you don't see that as the Washington Post, how do you see, you know, you see everyone else might be compromised. How do you see that you're not compromised? So that's something to keep in mind. The media is getting money from the Chinazis. And of course, what, what we're finding out increasingly is, you know, they've got some, some uh, police captain in New York City on the, on the payroll. They've got all these uh, uh, professors who forget to mention that they're getting millions from the Chinazis. Um, there's a lot going on here and it's not pretty. And, and so to come back to, you know, this disinformation, so the story was not covered in the way it should have been covered. All right, it's their choice to cover what they want to cover. The story was specifically blocked from being shared. That's not that's not just a journalistic choice of hey, we decided not to cover that. You know, the NPR called it a pure distraction. And so they weren't going to cover it. Now, they can make that decision. That's that's their legally, that's their decision to make. Of course, now that even Hunter Biden admits he is under investigation, criminal investigation by the FBI, it's pretty obvious that it's not a pure distraction. And what they should be doing is having a news conference and apologizing for how stupid and how completely poor journalists they are. Um, and And the head of NPR should resign. You know, these are the things that should be happening. I can't believe that I, for a second, allowed my national public radio that I care about to so badly cover the presidential election, and therefore I tender my resignation. That's not happening. They haven't even responded to the fact that they hid the news from people purposely because it was a pure distraction. Turns out it's all true but you didn't get to know about it when you were voting. But there's another piece here that is really important. And Tim, you and I have talked about this before um, on this podcast. I don't know if we've, if we've kind of gotten the opportunity to do a commentary about it, but we should. Um, but we've talked about it several times on, on the podcast. The deep state connections with it, there are all kinds of former CIA people who are expert commentators on different networks. There are all kinds of these connections. And so when a news operation says something about, you know, the this is this is how it works and the intelligence agencies say this, these these guys are all buddies. They're working with each other. And that is a big problem. And if you say, well, wait a second, just because one worked for one and the other, what's that, Paul? All right, maybe maybe that was all innocent. Maybe that's just he chose a new job. But then listen to the rest of this story. When that laptop story broke, we had James Clapper, 
we had Michael Hayden, we had John Brennan, all the heads of intelligence agencies under Obama come out and say they knew it was obvious this was Russian disinformation. This was Russian disinformation. And you can see there are links at thisiscommonsense.org, at this piece, mainstream disinformation, to different places where you can see the media talking about, oh, absolutely, this is obviously Russian disinformation. Everybody repeating that. Only problem is, not only is there zero evidence that this, is Russia, this was Russian disinformation, it turns out it's true. It turns out it's all true. So where did they get the Russian disinformation? What led them to mention that? Well, you would have thought one of the reporters interviewing them would have said, well, how do you know that this is Russian disinformation? They didn't ask any of those questions. We don't have media that ask questions anymore. They don't wanna know. They wanna know why, what are we spinning? How are we spinning it? What do we want the American people to think? I, who could care less what the truth is? So we had these intelligence heads from the past all talking a lie. And we had that lie just spread all over. And Glenn Greenwald pointed out, you know, he, he called these guys professional liars. And of course they are. And, uh, and I point out in, in one of the footnotes in this piece that, of course, what led Edward Snowden to release the information he had about what the NSA was doing in terms of spying on every American and knowing every bank transaction we'd made and every phone call we'd made and every email we'd made and every social media post we had done. But um, what caused Edward Snowden to do that was seeing James Clapper lie to the Congress in a hearing in which he had taken an oath to tell the truth. It's perjury before Congress. It was broadcast all over the country. He was asked, is the NSA collecting information on Americans? And he said no, which was a lie. And then he said, not wittingly, meaning maybe by accident somewhere. That was another big lie because he knew at the time, in fact, he's since apologized as if somehow he felt like he had to lie. He knew at the time they were scooping up everything, not accidentally, not occasionally, not maybe accidentally some, and then sometimes we went after a few people, everything. They're just scooping up everything. It, I mean, this, to me, that is just so frightening. It's the biggest story, I think, in the last, you know, 10 years. And, um, and so here is Clapper and these guys continuing, even though they're out of office, because they have that megaphone from the mainstream media. And the media then, because they have Clapper and Brennan and these guys who are official, they get to broadcast the lie just as vehemently as they can. And anyway, go to the go to the site, uh, thisiscommonsense.org, read this piece, hit some of the links, and get a little bit more information because this was an effort by the deep state folks to lie and to empower the media to lie every which way. 
And I think one of the things I, I liked about the way that uh, that uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald put it is he, he pointed out, look, if you want to hate Trump, if you want to say we have to we have to do everything we can to tell people how bad Trump is and to claim that he's the worst guy ever, then fine. But the media cannot be actively involved in spreading known disinformation. And that's what they did before this election. The media didn't just kill and hide the New York Post story. They actively spread lies about it. That's something altogether different. Though not really very different from all the other lies they spread. I mean, I'm pretty radical on the whole idea that the major media, corporate media in America, is largely now a creature of the CIA. And the CIA is in the business of disinformation, not in the business of information. And there's a reason for that. I I mean, we talked about it before. I mean, William Casey made it very clear to Ronald Reagan why. And it's very interesting. Uh, But the idea that any news organization would have a former disinformation artist on its... It, it, on, its, on its payroll is just absurd to me, uh, which just shows that, that, they don't, that they are disinformation artists, pure. That's, what, that's their job. They know their job is that. I don't think that, that, that uh, media, major media is in the journalist business. I think they're in the business of disinformation. Uh, anyway, uh, but... And, and you know, I, I know some people will say they're just in the business of, of making money. That's all it is. They're just trying to sell. But if you look at the way they cover things, I, I just don't know how you can maintain that. It makes sense. Oh, yeah, they're just trying to make money. And, and they are trying to make money. I mean, they, they don't stay in business. They don't make money. But, but if you look at how they're covering things and you realize that this election, you had, you know, what, 51% of the people on one side and 48% on the other, something like that. Was, is that how the media spread? Was it 5148, the way the media covered this thing? I don't think so. So, you know, it's just not even, it's it's not even worth entertaining the idea that this is somehow due to some accident or just the way it kind of rolled out or that they're just trying to sell papers and, and advertisements on TV. We have media that, well, we, and it wasn't this week, but weeks ago, we mentioned that, uh, we, we highlighted that someone had pointed out maybe we need to make these media corporations subject to the same campaign finance restrictions and rules and transparency that other political groups are are part of. And of course, I, I don't really advocate that because I advocate stopping to slam different political groups and require them to do all this reporting and and jump through all kinds of legal hoops. Because, of course, all the campaign finance reform that's been passed has reformed nothing. No one would argue, hey, it'd be a lot worse. It was a lot lot worse before. Now it's a lot better because of the campaign finance rules. No, it's just a constant, everything's corrupt. Well, here's the problem with most of the campaign finance rules. They are, like most regulations, designed to protect the people who are already part of the in crowd. In big business, it works that way. When they regulate shipping or something, well, the big shipping companies are usually in favor of the regulations because they make it tougher on the new guys, on the little guys. 
And I can tell you as one of the little guys in politics that I'm scared to death to make a contribution in the state of California or the state of Washington. There's a number of states where the campaign finance rules are such that, you know, if you're a big outfit, well, then it's a tiny cost of doing business if you have to litigate something or if you get fined or something. But if you're a small fry, anybody filing a complaint can lead to an investigation that you have to get lawyers to look at things and do things unless you, you really want to go blind into the lion's den. And, uh, and, and so it's going to cost you 100000 maybe $200,000. Well, if you're a small outfit like mine, where you might be making a, a contribution for $100,000, if we're lucky, maybe you're making a contribution for 25000 Well, who's going to make a contribution to a group for $25,000 knowing that I risk a legal entanglement that could cost me $200,000. So people, and, and look, most people have never been involved in this, so they would have no reason to know that. All they know is we're trying to stop the big billionaires. But every rule they pass helps the big billionaires and hurts the little guy. So it's, uh, anyway. Well, your piece was mainstream disinformation, and one correction, you said Tuesday. It was done on Wednesday, December 16th. Ah, ah. But that's the third mistake I've made this decade. Oh. Well, the decade is young. Anyway, uh, speaking of disinformation, it's uh, the next piece, which may have been the, the Tuesday piece. Yes. But uh, prognosis negative, um, which we should just tell people. We should give you the credit. That's your title, which as soon as I we were struggling on this title, and then you said that, and and you said it's a Seinfeld reference, and of course I knew that because I love Seinfeld. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, and we, we want to go into how the show used it, but um, we're talking about the fact that in the United States, coverage of the coronavirus has been completely negative. And there was a study that came out that showed the coverage in the US has been much more negative about what a disaster and government's not doing the right things and everybody's dying and you should be super worried and much more negative than it has been in other countries. I have noticed that we get very little news about some of the problems they've had in the UK and in Germany. Um, unrest, violence, protests, people demanding that the lockdown stop. Um, if this, you know, if, if it were, if the lockdowns had been demanded by Donald Trump, I think we would have heard about how bad lockdowns are. And I think we would have heard about how all over the world they're, they're, protesting against lockdowns. Instead, we were told that the lockdowns are the only way to stop the virus and that anyone who doesn't want to lock down or wear a mask, you know, in between bites uh, of their dinner somewhere is killing everyone. And I mean, the, the whole thing has been to feed into fear of this virus and to just say, we can't know, this is beyond us. And so we better just do what our leaders tell us. And the interesting thing is how that's kind of had an, uh, an effect to cause people to be more skeptical about things. 
I think the way they've covered the virus makes people more skeptical now about taking the vaccine. And and I think certainly when you rush a vaccine like this, which I'm glad I wanted them to rush, I do. Let's do this as fast as possible because it might save somebody's life. But you give that person a choice as to whether they take that vaccine or not. And that's, I think, where we're going to see this going in the future. Will they at some point tell people they have to get the vaccine? Will they force people either by law or by so using their power in society to basically coerce it without you know, arresting you if you don't do it. But I'm glad they pushed the virus. I'm glad they did it as fast as they did. I've complained that, you know, other countries approved our, you know, the virus created here in the U.S. faster than we did. And one of the reasons is because we have stupid bureaucratic rules that we had to wait like 10 days for this for the FDA's meeting to take place. Like they couldn't say, hey, you know what? Let's all get on a Zoom call tomorrow and approve this virus. Why should we wait 10 days? I mean, people are dying. It may not be everybody's dying like they'd like us to believe, but people are dying. So, you know, I'm for, I'm, I'm glad that they have pushed like they've pushed. I'm glad that they've basically gotten rid of a bunch of ridiculous FDA red tape. But in the end, the, our defense against them doing something too fast and creating a really bad situation and killing people with a vaccine is give people the freedom to say yes or say no. And uh, anyway, this this uh, this media push here is again a case in which I don't know how someone doesn't have the same feeling I have that they are more interested in writing a news story designed to get me to take a certain action than they are with writing a news story to tell me all the facts so I can make up my own mind. And I want media that wants me to have facts and wants me, embraces the idea of me making up my own mind. And that's, I don't know where you find that these days. We had two other stories well worth reading, uh, two other commentaries this week. One was Why We Still Live, which, you know, everybody should be wondering why we still live. And this was about the fact that we have had some close calls about nuclear weapons being used. And in two cases, Russians who did the right thing instead of the wrong thing and, and would have been justified in many ways with making a reaction uh, that would have been disastrous for millions of people, if not more than, than just a few million. Um, and then of course, we also pointed out that there's uh, increasing uh, literature out there suggesting that we have been saved from nuclear war, not only by a couple of uh, Russians doing the right thing, but by UFOs, by aliens. And people might, okay, we're getting crazy now. I, you know, it hasn't been huge news, but it is out there in the news now that after decades and decades of poo-pooing anything about UFOs, that our government now admits that there are unidentified flying objects, some flying through the air, some flying through the water in the oceans and then up into the air, some of them round flying saucers, 
some of them triangular in shape, but they are traveling at speeds and maneuverable. Maybe maybe we don't know that they're maneuverable. That implies there's an alien in the in the craft. They move around in ways that we don't have any science for how you could do that. We are not at that level where we can build planes and ships and water, air, you know, vehicles that can do these kind of things. And increasingly, there is a lot of talk that aliens have been discovered. Now, the, the government's not announcing, yes, we have found aliens, but there are numerous people who have some reason to have knowledge who are suggesting that that is the case. The the Roswell thing, you know, if you've seen uh, Independence Day, when the president says, oh, that's that's just an old wives' tale, and then the, <laughs> the defense secretary says, that's not entirely true. And then after the president finds out that they found aliens, he says, why was I not told? And two words, plausible deniability. So, uh, and again, I'm not suggesting, I know they found aliens. I don't know where they have or they haven't. I really don't have a clue. But if they had, I don't think they would have told us. And that again is, is a problem. We either want a society in, in which citizens control the government, in which we're free and we have you know, we're, we're gaining more knowledge to make good decisions because we control our lives. Or we want a society in which experts who know a lot more than we can ever know will tell us how to live, what to do, when to do it, who to do it with. And we don't have to worry our pretty little heads with any of the information. So this, we won't go into a whole lot of detail, but I encourage you to uh, read this story. Um uh, why we still live and, uh, hit some of the links and, and realize that this is something that again, you know, they haven't come clean on. And there was one other story of the week that was on Thursday. Uh, your Democrats shadow, excuse me, Democrats shadow play. Well, and I think that was Friday, wasn't it? Nope. Today's is uh, why we still live. Oh, okay. we're, reco- we're recording on Friday right now, and it was uh, Thursdays that was Democrats' shadow play. Does anybody really know what time it is or day? <laughs> uh, apparently, you don't. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Democrats' shadow play, I think, is because both of us said the same thing that we had totally forgotten about this story until we stumbled upon somebody talking about it. But if you think back to the very first Democratic caucus in Iowa, it was won by Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders did not get any real bounce out of it because it was all confused and they weren't sure what the vote total was and it was close and they didn't know if Bernie Sanders had won or not. And what's obvious is that from a a study, an audit of what took place, All the fingers seem to be pointing at the DNC, the Democratic National uh, Commission. Um, And they screwed this up. They've done things in the past. I mean, look at 2016. There's no question that they screwed over Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is not my best buddy. So it's not like, oh, they, they did this to my guy. They did it to somebody else's guy. But if you have 
institutions like the Democratic National Committee that it's actually a commission, I think I did last time. Uh, but if, if you have groups like that that have such power and that it frankly are kind of almost recognized in law, which is another problem, uh, because we don't have a two-party system in our constitution, we shouldn't have one in law, but we have all kinds of institutions like the Federal Election Commission or the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington that are literally peopled in such a way as to be partisan, half Republican, half Democrat, which is designed to kind of stop one party from stomping on the other. But it means that if you're not part of either party, you've got two parties who can stomp on you. That's not equal protection of the laws. It's a crime and it continues and continues. But, but, uh, but I digress. Anyway, we won't, we won't talk a whole lot about it, but the bottom line is, if you're thinking, well, geez, who would, who would do these things to screw up an election? Look at Iowa and look at how that was screwed up and look at how that impacted Bernie Sanders. And I say that because I have never seen anything in politics, and I'm getting to be a little older. I've been around, I've been trying to pay attention has anyone seen anything like the way Democrats circled the wagon around Biden before Super Tuesday in March? In literally a 24, 48, 72 hour period, every Democratic candidate got out and endorsed Biden, just one after the other. I'm out, endorse Biden, except for one candidate, the one candidate who had every reason to get out. Elizabeth Warren did not get out. She went on to lose her home state. I believe she came in third in her home state behind both Biden and Bernie Sanders. But she stayed in. Why would you stay in to get embarrassed like that? I think she stayed in as part of the plan. Everybody get out who might take votes away from Biden. But Elizabeth, we need you to stay in to take votes from Bernie because we can't have Bernie. We can't win with Bernie. We've got to stop him. Now, these are all voluntary decisions. They have every right to get in or get out or do whatever they want. But why did they get in and get out? Why didn't any media person ask them, wow, this sure is a lot of people jumping out of the race and endorsing Biden all of a sudden. Did you know why is that? I never heard any of those questions, and um, and it made a heck of a difference. And I suspect, knowing people in Washington, that it wasn't because they got a phone call and did it for the good of the party or the good of the country. They probably said, oh, "Okay, that that does make sense. That that'll be for the good of the party and the good of the of the country." Now, what's in it for me? Because that's how Washington works. And so it'll be very interesting. We know that Buttigieg is transportation secretary, which I'm excited about just because I was scared to death he was going to be ambassador to China. And I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. And so I would be horrified that we were going to go back to whatever you want, Xi Jinping. You, you, you call the tune and we'll dance. Um, so I'm glad he's not that at least, 
But let's see what happens with Elizabeth Warren. I guess they can always kind of screw her over. But uh, I think she's going to get something good because I think she was part of that whole cabal. And I think it was a cabal. I think it was a conspiracy in that it was a bunch of people privately doing things, agreeing on a course of action that was never relayed to the public. Um, and I think, you know, knowing the DNC history, we, we know how, how often that happens. What's amazing about it all is it's not that it happened, but that they chose such a goofy candidate. Biden is such a is such a bad candidate. He is such a ridiculous man. Not because, well, partly because he is one by nature, but he's also just simply because he's old and he's going senescent, and that's just the way it is. Uh, but he's also corrupt. That's the other thing that's just so cre- rich. Yes, it is. And, and in the sense, you know, all the, well, the Trump, they're going to run the government for their family business. Well, <laughs> Biden is... He's that and more. And then the other thing is that Trump's a liar. And, and Trump is someone who, who doesn't understand that there's a limit to hype. You know, at a certain point, <laughs> yeah. if you hype it enough, you're lying. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's kind of a subtle gray area there, and then you're off in some stratosphere. And, well, and he's not, I wouldn't say he's not subtle, but he's not in a gray area. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's something there's something going on in his head that's really brilliant but he is definitely lying and i mean it's just there's nothing like the truth half the time so yes we, we know that we all know that right but but you look at someone like biden who has a history of plagiarism not once or twice but a repeated history of plagiarism and i remember seeing that video a, a lot in the spring of him, this was back when he was running for president years, decades ago, where he confronts this guy at somebody's home in New Hampshire and tells the guy, I'll put my IQ up against your IQ, which someone who says that, I mean, that's not someone I like. That's just, I just have to say, just saying that alone. But then he goes on to talk about how smart he is. And he talks about how he finished high in his class and he got a scholarship and this and that. He mentioned three specific things. And it turns out he lied about all three. And I don't mean in the end, I think he said, oh, he misspoke. He lied. You know, misspoking is, oh, oh, I, I, I think that was Thursday. Oh, no, it turned out to be Wednesday. You know, that's that's something altogether different. Uh, so anyway, he, he is a liar. He isn't to be trusted in all kinds of ways, but he's probably the only Democrat who could have won. And I think that I, I'm sure that they had ample polling and that's what, uh, you know, that's what the story was, is that this is the guy who can win and we all got to do it. And here's what you get. And here's your consolation prize for doing so. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Though I do have to wonder, couldn't Bernie have won? Don't you think it's possible that Bernie could have won? Yes, I do think it's possible. Yes. Uh, But I think it's much tougher. And the truth is, I think, you know, I don't know what the actual perfect vote total would have been if there was no fraud anywhere. Um, But I'm not shocked. I mean, if, if someone told me, you know, then an angel appears and says, I have all perfect knowledge and Trump lost by X whatever votes. 
I would be shocked. I mean, this is a guy who's been hammered for four years on the media nonstop. Uh, it's a guy who was never that popular to begin with. I mean, a majority of the people disapprove of him and did in 2016 when he won. It was only that they disapproved of Hillary Clinton even more. Now, I think he did some good things. The economy was going well. I think he had some reasons to say, I should do better in 2020. And of course, he got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Um, but I'm not, I'm not here saying, you know, somehow Trump would have won the election, but for cheating. Um, and, and so, you know, I kind of look at this and I think, uh, uh, Trump, you know, had almost everything against him, including the coronavirus, which I think, you know, had it been a different president, the media would have covered much differently. We would all know that there were 300,000 people who died if Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016. But it would have been even more if it wasn't for the, the heroic things that Hillary Clinton was doing fighting it. The media would have been on her side. And instead, they were against Trump left and right. And I also think that, that you know, Trump's, Trump's not, you know, he, he's not going to have the same touchy-feely um, you know, this, this, the, the pandemic was not a good look for him. And I think that that makes a difference. So, um, so I'm not shocked that he lost, but I do think that, uh, he, without the coronavirus, he would have won against Biden. And I think even with the coronavirus, he might have won against some of the others. You know, Biden does a little bit better. I think probably did a little bit better in Pennsylvania than somebody else might've, uh, you know, had it been Buttigieg, I think Trump would have taken even more of the black vote than he took. Um, and there are all kinds of factors like that. And, and I'm sure that they had very in-depth polling and lots of people looking at it. And I, I suspect that they made the right decision in terms of winning. Yeah. I just see it as that they can work with Biden. I mean, Biden is the, a DNC kind of guy. Bernie isn't a DNC kind of guy, though he does cave to them all the time. I mean, the Democrats treat him, you know, the, the establishment treats him horribly, and yet he just goes along with what they're doing. He doesn't make a big deal of it. I wonder what they have on him. Maybe he's, he's aiming for a fourth or a fifth or a sixth house. Maybe, maybe what they have on him is that they're going to stop killing stories if he doesn't do what they say. So, I mean, I think they have plenty on him. Um, but, but, you know, it seems to me at this point, um, I think the bigger question is, does Joe Biden finish his term? And I kind of think not. I think there are two issues. I think there's, I think there's now the, the potential that something does come up legally, you know, impeachment wise or otherwise. Uh, but I think the other thing is just physically, I don't know that he's up to it. And that means we may end up with President Kamala Harris, who I don't like. I don't like Biden either, uh, but I don't like her and I dislike her more, uh, both because of her track record as AG in California and because of her stated policy positions. But also, I think it's not good to have someone become president who almost nobody in the country knows or has any real clue who she is. Um, this campaign was a weird campaign from Joe Biden's basement and Kamala Harris, I think, you know, if she ends up president in a year. I think a lot of people are going to go, who is she again? 
So that that has its own problems. Anyway, uh, as we said in in one of these scripts this week, uh, the election's over. Unfortunately, our national nightmare doesn't appear to be. And what else is over? I think this podcast. Yes. Yes, I think so, too. All right, man. Thanks much. And thanks for the listeners and viewers for joining us for This Week in Common Sense for the third week of December 2020. You can find Paul five days a week at thisiscommonsense.org, where he writes columns known as Common Sense with Paul Jacob. You can find him as Common Sense with Paul Jacob on Facebook and MeWe. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this podcast is available as video on YouTube and BitChute, and as audio, hosted on SoundCloud, and available from podcatchers like Apple's, Google's, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. Thank you.